Welcome to BIV Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom. Well, actually, it's not the newsroom today. It's the outdoors of business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. John Horgan signaled Tuesday that he was leaving his position as BC Premier in the fall. He's set off, of course, in motion uh, a new leadership race that will get going quite quickly. But Horgan's legacy is an interesting one. As a five-year Premier, a two-term NDP Premier, the first in British Columbia, the first one actually to leave without a scandal, and he leaves with stock rather high. I thought we'd bring in Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co., who looks at public opinion for Glacier Media, looks at it for us at BIV, has had a keen sense of politics in this province for a long time, to get an assessment of his legacy. Good to see you, Mario. Good to see you too, Kirk. Um, let's touch, I guess, the um, let's touch the positives with John Horgan first. Uh, where you think actually he measured up quite well and what the public felt he measured up quite well in doing? Well, he managed to lead uh, the province through the pandemic with a very high approval rating, one that they turned into an opportunity to have a majority government in October of 2020 that was materialized. Uh, Somebody who knew when to step aside when it came to talking about issues related to health and how the pandemic should be managed. Um, We didn't start the year assuming that the premiers of Alberta and BC would be different ones by the end of it. And the circumstances under which they are both leaving are very different. Uh, Jason Kenney losing control of his caucus, people getting very desperate because of the way he was managing COVID-19, and John Horgan essentially leaving, and a lot of residents uh, continuing to be happy with the way the COVID-19 pandemic was managed. So I think that is definitely part of the legacy that he will leave, the opportunity to continue leading British Columbia, getting a majority government in the process and ensuring that people, even who didn't vote for his party, uh, were happy with what, how he was doing things. Yeah, most politicians don't understand when to leave. And of course, there are other circumstances for John Horgan, uh, the second bout of cancer. He's cancer-free now. He's 63 years old. He clearly wants uh, some other priorities in his life. But, uh, but how significant is it that, that a political leader actually gets to depart when he or she are not in disfavor? Well, it's completely uncharted territory for anybody who's been in this province only in this century. Uh, the way Gordon Campbell left office, the way Christy Clark left office, were very different from uh, what we witnessed yesterday and what we'll continue to witness for the next few weeks. Uh, it's not as if the labors of government are gone. You know, there's labor strife, there are certain decisions that need to be taken. And I think part of what made this more compelling is the fact that he was able to bridge two very different uh, caucuses, if you will. There's a very staunch pro-union NDP voter, and there's also a very environmentally friendly NDP voter. And, and many of them might be dissatisfied with certain decisions that were taken. But part of the reason why his popularity is significantly higher than that of the NDP is that he was a very personable guy, uh, somebody who uh, the average British Columbian could relate to. And, you know, it's it's now ironic to go back to the 2017 campaign and the, the emphasis that some of the BC liberal organizers had on calling him Hall Horgan. You know, I, I don't think we've seen that hashtag over the past couple of days, uh, which shows you how misguided they were when they decided that that was something they wanted to use against them. Yeah, when, when he would 
address that when we were asking him questions at BIV. He would say, listen, as an opposition leader, I had to be Mr. No all the time. I had to be the, the grouse, the grumpy guy, the person who was antagonizing. And he got to kind of go back to what he felt was his original character, what, what essentially got him elected as an MLA, what got him elected as a party leader, which was not that angry guy. Um, the one other area that I think people were perceived uh, perceiving him on when he entered office, Mario, was that like a lot of NDP governments, didn't have um, the best economic stewardship experience and that it was going to wreck what were nation-leading public finances in this province. That didn't happen. And so in a way, has he conferred on the NDP um, a new reputation of not necessarily being terrible stewards of the economy it's like the, is that how is that what we have to grade them on now that they they don't wreck something and so therefore they're okay well i think there was an expectation particularly from the bc liberal voter uh, that things were not going to be as great under an ndp government uh, the numbers really haven't changed that much obviously we continue to see challenges on the housing front and um, with a lot of confusion about what covid 19 could bring in the future um, but I think there was an expectation that this was going to be a lost cause, that this government would implode within the first couple of years, that there would be strife between the Green Party and the NDP and that the economy would not do as well. And I think part of the reason for this is that uh, Horgan's two predecessors certainly helped pave the way for that. Uh, the healthcare system did not collapse in the early stages of the COVID-19 pandemic because of Adrian Dix. And the economy was managed very well by Carol James. So this shows you what unity within a party can bring you down the road once you form the government. It should be a lesson for other political parties where people cannot wait to stab the losing leadership candidates in the back and hope never to see them again. Now, um, you can take a look at the perspective that the economy wasn't wrecked. It didn't have to be fixed, but it wasn't really wrecked. Um, but if you're an environmentalist in this province, you would be looking at the NDP administration and saying, you know, not exactly a full-fledged success. Uh, double down on Site C, yeah. certainly backed the LNG project, um, kind of fought the pipeline, but in the end said, okay, it's gonna get built. I mean, we can't do a whole lot more about that. Um, from and, and of course the old growth forest issue that I think still is, is lingering there for, for the party. Um, on the environmental front, can this NDP government be deemed a failure? Well, it would be for people who vote with the environment as their only uh, cause that they are concerned about. I think there's definitely a sense from those who didn't want to see Site C happening that they were misled by the government. There were so many expectations about how the government would behave when it came to the Kinder Morgan pipeline uh, back in April of 2018. And the reality is that public opinion was shifting more towards jobs and a little bit away uh, from the environmental concerns. And I think the government read that very well and decided to, to go with that, to take the hit as far as the criticism that was coming from the environmental front, but also knowing that there were ways in which they could make it up to them. Uh, one of them is uh, the in initiative related to phasing out uh, fuel vehicles uh, in the next two decades. You know, it's something that the environmental uh, voter reacted very well to and they want to see it happening. 
but I guess you know part of the problem is that you win some and you lose some. You know, this is one of the reasons why the Green Party has not formed the government alone in any jurisdiction anywhere on this planet. It's very complicated to do something like that and to promise that you're going to deal with this issue as the number one concern when there are so many other things uh, that also need to be taken into consideration. Now back to the economy, uh, because in as much as people could say, well, we didn't run deficits, we didn't lose credit ratings, we, you know, we, we managed to be still a nation leader uh, when, um, when, you know, when other provinces were having their difficulties. No one can accuse the NDP, though, of actually building a growth economy, an economy yeah. that actually is going to build itself larger. Um, having said that, again, have they moved themselves sufficiently into the center left uh, in order to position themselves for their next leader? to be that kind of person who actually thinks about generating prosperity, a larger economy, a more competitive economy? Or is, or is John Horgan the guy who did it and the next person won't do it? Well, I think one of the major questions uh, that we need to look into as we prepare for the next election is what is going to happen with the voter that emerged in the 2020 election, uh, which I like to describe as the Trudeau Horganite. Uh, people who voted federally for the Liberals in 2015 and 2019 and voted provincially for the NDP in 2020. Part of this is pandemic management, of course, but it's also the fact that you have people who are no longer looking at the BC Liberals or whatever their name is in the next election as the de facto home of the federal liberal voter. And it's ultimately something that has to do with personality, with the fact that you want somebody there who is rolling up their sleeves. I think there was a little bit of that in the 2015 Trudeau campaign. Uh, it still happens in some parts of the country, maybe not in British Columbia where they're not number one anymore. Uh, but figuring out how you can establish that emotional connection with the voter is going to be crucial for whoever decides to take on this job. Uh, it's complicated to do this uh, because Horgan was able to downplay those expectations. I think we heard so many people saying that he was erratic, that he was always upset, that he was insulting to people. And we ended up in a 2017 campaign where the only really insulting moment was Christy Clark talking to somebody at a store. So when you have that type of expectation, it's a little bit easier. Now, it's difficult to come into something like this and to establish a government, have to deal with a cabinet and try to figure out how to keep it together. So it's not only personality and that emotional connection, it's also how you can make sure that everybody is going to be the same with you as they were with John Horgan. Trying to preserve uh, culture for any successful political party is of course a great challenge. And the NDP have a bit of a cultural challenge on their hands now. Here's a guy who was quite well liked, uh, people who didn't even vote for him still liked him as you put it uh, he was the the premier that everybody wanted to have a beer with right and and so how important is it that the party tries to translate that culture that john horgan created in this party of of the likable premier who can still say some difficult things to you how important is that do you think in choosing another leader well, it's, I think it's essential uh, more than anything because uh, it was a little bit easier for Horgan to do this in 2017. People were starting to get a little bit tired of the liberals. Uh, 
it was significantly easier to do this in 2020 because the contrast with Andrew Wilkinson was just staggering. Uh, this time around, you have a busy liberal party that is probably going to rebrand soon, uh, more energized with the opportunity now of knowing that the biggest asset of the NDP right now is not going to be there in the next election. So there's going to be a lot of challenges. And I think Kevin Falcon will try to establish that emotional connection uh, because he's a family man, because he wasn't involved in everything that happened um, during the latter years of the BC Liberal government. I think that is one of the reasons why he tried to distance himself immediately after the Colin Commission report came in and essentially didn't want to touch anything that had to do with Rich Coleman, and I don't think he should either. Uh, but ultimately, it's difficult for the NDP to try to reestablish around a particularly popular persona. And, and parties usually go through very different uh, moments when they go through something like that. You know, Scott Moe in Saskatchewan comes to mind. Yes, they've won elections, but he doesn't have the gravitas that somebody like Brad Wall had. So you could still win the election, but the level of criticism is going to be there. A little bit easier to do in Saskatchewan where the NDP hasn't really been successful. It's going to be much more complicated for whoever becomes the new leader of the BC NDP with the BC Liberals now knowing that they have a chance. So if you can't replicate John Horgan, what kind of image do you think the party has to then have as a, in a, at its leadership? Well, one of the things that they did very well was establishing that connection uh, with people who are struggling, people who are trying to get into the housing market, people who are working and not getting by. Uh, I think that was one of the reasons why they did well in the 2017 election, trying to establish that contrast with a BC Liberal government that was saying that everything was fine and that was ultimately suffering from so many years uh, where nothing was really changing in the minds of those who felt left behind. Um, this is going to be more complicated because now we're into the post-pandemic process. And we look at the election uh, of Doc Ford in Ontario as an example of this. He's riding the high of people no longer having to wear masks and doing everything fine and all is forgiven. Somebody who in the middle of the pandemic had approval ratings that were very close to what Jason Kenney had. So there's an opportunity to use that timing to your ad advantage um, this time around. Uh, I think it's more about trying to have a vision for the future. And I think this is going to be very interesting to watch because we'll have leadership candidates from different ministries, maybe people who aren't even in cabinet right now. The vision for the next five or six years is going to be crucial to try to make sure that those voters aren't voting not only because the premier is a good guy, but because the party has the ideas that they want to support. So the, so the presumption, of course, and the legislative presumption is that the next election's in 2024. But this leadership campaign is going to end rather swiftly. It's gonna end almost as quickly as it starts sometime this fall. Uh, what does a new leader do here? What does a new leader do in terms of uh, either uh, resting and trying to build momentum and build, uh, build an image, or do you capitalize uh, coming through a leadership campaign and go to the polls quickly to get a new mandate? I think it depends on just how divisive the leadership race is. Uh, if we have a situation where it becomes more of a coronation and everybody seems to be happy with their choices, if you have a couple of cabinet appointments that make sense, if you're able to have a party that is willing to fight for you, and if you continue to criticize the VC Liberals the way you have in the past, 
there might be an opportunity to call this early. Uh, it might actually be in their best interest if that is the case. But if we wound up in a situation um, where the party is divided, uh, there's people actually thinking of doing something different, or somebody gets really upset with some environmental policy and joins the Greens. I mean, there are so many ways this could go horribly wrong if the party doesn't emerge united. So if there's unity within the party and people are satisfied with their choice, then it would be in their best interest to try to do this a little bit earlier. And, you know, we know that there's fixed election dates, but we also had one the last time and it wasn't respected. So uh, not, governments not, would tend to do that. Not, not worth the paper it's written on at the moment. Uh, I mean, so perhaps you do it right after a first budget, say in the spring. Um, so my last point about this one, though, is the BC Liberals themselves are in this identity quandary at the moment, uh, at least a label quandary, uh, knowing that they could be on the cusp of an election. Does this persuade Kevin Falcon to lay off the idea of renaming the BC Liberals something else? I just don't think he can go back on that one uh, because it has been so crucial during the leadership race. That was one of the things that he discussed the most. He mentioned it again after the by-election. I think there's an expectation from voters that they need to shed away from this. And the last nail in the coffin was the calling commission. You know, all of those mentions of BC liberals being involved in files that they weren't particularly great at. Uh, I think it's an opportunity for the party to say, we have to find a different name. We have to find a different way to do things. And it helps us get away from the past. Uh, it's in a strange way, it's what the Saskatchewan party did. Of course, they can't take the BC party name that easily, uh, but it gives you an opportunity to say, we stand for all of these things, but not with the people who are known as BC liberals and who were the main protagonists of the BC liberal party during 16 years. So they'll rename themselves the uh, Horgan BC liberal. Uh, anyway, <laughs> Uh, but uh, last last question on this one. So what is important now for somebody like Kevin Falcon? He is, ap after all, he, he now is the sitting party leader is, as an opposition leader. He now doesn't have uh, a government leader to, to you know, to come at, uh, come at all the time. But he has a population that has a little bit of a space here to hear him when it's not hearing the premier of the province. What does he have to do now in the next number of months? grow the base, not geographically. I think that was one of the problems in the 2020 election. The expectation that certain vast areas of the province were going to continue to vote BC Liberal. Uh, the housing crisis has made a lot of people move away from Metro Vancouver into the Fraser Valley, bringing different values and different views. So it's no longer your you know, Bible carrying voter who is going to be happy to vote BC Liberal no matter what. Um, you need to be able to connect with a younger generation of voters. And one of the ways to do that is to talk about issues that they care about. Uh, nobody has actually championed the housing file that much. Uh, there's a lot of discussions, especially in the, in the latter stages of the BC Liberal government. Uh, all this talk about red tape and bureaucracy reduction, that does very little for a voter in his late teens or early 20s who is looking for a way to make the most out of his paycheck. And that is the kind of voter that looks at the NDP and says, these people are going to help me. Uh, making sure that there is a building permit available within 48 hours is not going to get my vote. Good conversation as always, Mario. Really appreciate your help today. Thanks for, thanks for joining us. My pleasure.
Mario Canseco is president of Research Co. It's a public opinion research firm. He writes for us twice a week at BIV and at Glacier Media. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief at BIV. Thanks a lot for watching.